Let me start by telling you briefly how I got here so that you have some idea of what perspective I take on this. Um, I have an out-of-control cookbook habit is, is basically the beginning of it. I started, you know, as a normal person with a, you know, 1964 joy of cooking when I was first married in 1966. And I had the, the Fanny Farmer of that period and the settlement cookbook of that period. And then a few years ago, I looked around because I was remodeling, so I did, you know, figured out how much bookshelf space I needed. And I realized that I had 1,200 cookbooks and that I didn't cook for most of them anymore. And when I looked more closely, I realized that they told a story. You know, that the 1960s are nothing like today. That there's a huge change that's happened in American food. And I began looking at that, and then I began acquiring more cookbooks <laughs> for the period that didn't actually, that I hadn't actually experienced. You know, I've, I've experienced American food since, say, 1950. I was born in 44, but I don't really pay much attention before that. Uh, but I now have acquired cookbooks. Um, some of my, my treasures are things like the, um, this is the home cookbook from Toledo, Ohio in 1876. One of the interesting things about it is that in the back of it, you'll find recipes in German. Because this came from what is known as the German Triangle in this country from St. Louis to Milwaukee to Cincinnati. And, but you know, you'd have the evidence right here in the cookbook for that. And the Buckeye cookbook of the same period, which is addressed to the plucky housewives of 1876 who <coughs> master their work instead of letting it master them. And I, I've gotten to just love these, these cookbooks. Um, you know, food is... Food is essential to every culture, and it always amazes me to pick up a book in a bookstore in a library that purports to be about a culture and find nothing on food. You know, I, and I've learned what to look for in the index. Cookery, food, you know, meals, cooks. Often they're not there at all, and yet there's probably not a culture in the world in which it's possible to be born, come of age, get married, or die without food being involved. So how, and, and we don't all do it the same way. You know, I've got an uh, uh, Indian cookbook that talks about you know, studying the phases of the moon before you choose your, your menu and making sure that who worships whom on your dinner guests so that you have the right menu. We don't do that. So clearly there's a cultural difference in, in those, between those. It was, however, for academics it was probably worth their academic career to study food uh, until maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, it was considered, you know, women's work, and so not very interesting. That's changed, I'm glad to say. And one of the things that I, I use cookbooks to get at the questions that I want to explore, one of the things about them is that they are primary documents. You know, that you can look at them, for example, this, if, if you had any question about whether um, there was, you know, what the pr prominence of Germans and German speakers was in this country in the late 19th century, this cookbook tells you. Because this community cookbook has recipes in German. And, you know, when, you, know you mentioned the, the, that I do a program on, on Jewish food. Um, 
this is the, the first edition of the settlement cookbook from 1903. It's a reprint, by the way. Uh, one of the wonderful things is that so many of these early cookbooks and really valuable cookbooks for reference are now available in reprints. Um, this is, is from the, uh, a synagogue in, a German Jewish synagogue in Milwaukee, whose task was to Americanize the new immigrants from uh, the Eastern Europe who were coming into, in, in the 1880s, who were coming into America. And it, along with one of my real treasures that I didn't bring tonight because it doesn't have anything to do with Thanksgiving, and Babette's cookbook, they're known as the Trafe cookbooks because they are filled with recipes for things like oysters and other shellfish, uh, which leads you to the whole story of Reform Judaism, German Jews, the um, incoming Eastern European Jews who were mostly Orthodox, and, you know, and the culture clash. So the cookbooks themselves tell stories, and they're not edited. They have also been led through this to some novels, which I have brought you. And one of them is um, by Harriet Beecher Stowe. You may remember her of um, Uncle Tom's Cabin fame. This was later, and it's called Old Town Folks. And there's a wonderful description, which we may get to, about Thanksgiving. And another by Sarah Josepha Hale, which is who is really the person that we have to thank for our modern Thanksgiving. And she also, in this novel called Northwood, or Life North and South, showing the true character of both, she describes uh, a New England Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, she's quite an amazing character. This is probably the, the first um, novel written by an American woman. She found herself widowed with five children in, the, in about 18, early 1820s. And there weren't many reputable ways for a woman to earn a living. She did it with her pen and became, among other things, editor of Godey's Ladies Book until she retired in, 18, in the 1870s. So imagine, from the 1830s to the 1870s, she raised the, the um, um, distribution to about 150,000. It was, it was very influential. So, Thanksgiving. I'll start out with some, um, is this off, I hope? It's off. It's off. Yeah. I'll start out with some factoids which are always fun, which is that approximately 90% of Americans eat turkey on Thanksgiving. That's astonishing, you know? You can't get 90% of Americans to do anything at the same time. <laughs> Amazing that that happens. 91% eat cranberry sauce. Now, I don't know why that other percent, where that other percentage, whether it's the vegetarians who will have the cranberry sauce, or um, that's about 5 million gallons of cranberry sauce. This is one I like even better, though, which is that one-fifth of all the cream of mushroom soup sales occur in this holiday period, and 81% of the French fried onion rings. <laughs> Green bean bake. Is it true that it came out before, that, before the green bean bake? No, it's a result of the green bean bake. And in fact, if you buy a can of cream of mushroom soup at Walgreens, which is where I bought one at one point, there will be the recipe on the back. Another can in the same section will have the recipe for tuna noodle casserole, just in case you, you know, were needing that. Um, you know, and there's, there's some people who think that 
that the only kind of real cranberry sauce is the one with the rings around it. You know, which, which tells you something about how, and I'm quite serious about this, about how integrated the food industry is in our traditions, in our customs. People will, would rather have, many people would rather have green bean bake than anything else at Thanksgiving. So, so let me talk a bit about the history of this holiday and then the food and then let's think about what it says about us as a country. That this, you know, many people say this is their favorite holiday. Um, you know, what's not to like about a, a good big dinner? Let's start with that. But it's the holiday that uh, you, do, you don't buy presents for. You don't even buy guest gifts. You know, if you're going to someone's house, you may take food to contribute, but you don't take a present. It's quite, and, and, the, and more or less, with the exception of things like green bean bake, more or less the, the, it's been a kind of hands-off for the commercial aspects of it. You know, people who are selling turkeys make out and food, and you may get someone who's selling furniture say, if you were thinking of buying a new dining room table, this is the time. Or, you know, here are some cute plates you might want to add. That's about it. There aren't even... You know, decorations necessarily. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Now, the story that we all were told in grammar school that most of us believe is that there was a sort of a steady, unbroken line between 1621 when the pilgrims, who would never have called themselves pilgrims, they were Puritans, um, when the pilgrims celebrated their first Thanksgiving with the local Indian tribe. Let's start with the fact that the Puritans, I, I think this gets confused because we're confusing the big T Thanksgiving of the holiday in a few days and a, maybe a small T Thanksgiving of what was celebrated in 16 was was celebrated around the time of 1621 that feast probably was not a thanksgiving thanksgiving for the puritans was a very serious day of fasting day of prayer of and it was there was no fixed date for it the puritans were against fixed date for, for holidays they did not celebrate christmas they did not celebrate easter they thought that those were papist things and what you should thank God for is something of the moment. So if there was a uh, relief from a drought, if there, uh, the plague dissipated, or you had a, a, an important military victory, that was an occasion for a thanksgiving. A very serious thing, not to do with feasting. And in fact, the, the, there are very few references to thanksgivings for about 150 years after 1621. Um, 1636, there's one that suggests that after being in church all morning, though, they made merry. But no, no big deal. But this holiday, and I'll tell you all we know about it for sure, is there is an, uh, one eyewitness account. And this is from um, Edward Winslow. And he wrote to a friend in England, our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that so we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we have gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl, 
with a little help besides, served, com served the company almost a week, at which time, among other recreations, we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest their great king, Masoit, and some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it, it be not always so plentiful as it was this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. Now I might add that this is a letter to England hoping to get more people to come over. So he's not going to say half of us died in the last year. Um, so that's all we know for sure. Now there's some guesses from people who are at Plymouth Plantation who that there, were, there was probably fish, maybe lobsters, maybe eel, mussels, oysters, corn, parsnips, collards, turnips, spinach, onions, dried beans, dried blueberries, grapes, nuts. But you know, there's one thing that's missing, and there's, a, there's arguing about it, turkey. You know, some, some, some reports say that there were lots of turkeys, and that when he says that they killed fowl, that that's what it was. Others say, and this includes archaeologists at Plymouth Plantation, who in 10 years of digging in trash heaps have found very few turkey bones, that, <clears throat> that there weren't turkey bones there. There wasn't turkey. So you know that was the meal that was there, and it probably they would not have thought of it as Thanksgiving; they would have thought of it as something like the English Harvest Home Festival. The harvest is in, hooray! We're now coming into the good times because there's food, and there's food that's being saved. But it's not a Thanksgiving. And as far as this being the first Thanksgiving, you all may recall from grammar school also about Jamestown, 1607. Yeah, interesting. They had Thanksgivings before this. So how come, how come this is the one? The pilgrims with those square buckles? No, no, they didn't have square buckles. It's not true. Um, that was a later fashion that came in. Anyway, Jamestown was located in the place of the losing side of the Civil War. That's why we don't hear about Jamestown. We hear about New England and New England's holiday. So there are, we have days of Thanksgiving that we hear about later. Um, Washington declared one in honor of, of um, the development of the Constitution in 1889. There was one during the Revolutionary War over the <coughs> Battle of Saratoga. Apologize. But the idea of a Thanksgiving, an official Thanksgiving, was not current. But it seems that New England kept Thanksgiving all the time, that they loved this holiday, and they kept it going. Now, it was not national. Um, it would be declared by a local pastor or sometimes by the state. I mean, the, basically, the scope got wider with the years. And, and there are references in, in this brand new book that I have just bought, our, our own snug fireside, Images of the New England Home, 1760 to 1860. Uh, it's a reference of, um, well, your Thanksgiving is next week and ours is the week after, so we'll come to you next week and you can come to us the week after. So obviously they're not on the same day. 
it's, but the idea of a thanksgiving is there. And there are descriptions in this. This is um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Old Town Folks, and she describes getting ready for it. The pie is an English institution which planted on American soil forthwith ran rampant and burst forth into an untold variety of genera and species, not merely the traditional mince pie, but a thousand strictly American seedlings from the main stock evince the power of American housewives to adapt old institutions to new. Pumpkin pies, cranberry pies, huckleberry pies, cherry pies, green currant pies, peach, pear, plum pies, custard pies, apple pies, Marlboro pudding pies, pies with top crust, pies without, pies adorned in all sorts of fanciful uh, flutings and architectural strips laid across and around, and otherwise varied, attested to the boundless fertility of the feminine mind, which once let loose in a given direction, when once let loose in a given direction. And she says that there were pies everywhere, till the butteries and dressers and shelves and pantries were literally crowded with a jostling abundance. And a room would be set aside that was on the cold side of the house, and all those pies would get left all winter long. So you could just thaw out a pie. Uh, and people who visited New England were heartily sick of pie by the time they left because that was what was there. But for Thanksgiving, a pumpkin pie, a mince pie, an apple pie was absolutely essential. And now this is Sarah Josepha Hale. She wrote this book in 1827, Northwood, and then she revised it in 1851 because things were clearly deteriorating in the uh, relation between the sections of the country, north and south. The roasted turkey took precedence on this occasion, being placed at the head of the table, and well did it become its lordly station, sending forth the rich odor of its savory stuffing, and finely covered with a froth of basting. At the foot of the board, a sirloin of beef, flanked on either side by a leg of pork and a loin of mutton, seemed placed as a bastion to defend innumerable bowls of gravy and plates of vegetables disposed in that corner. You thought this is all, but it goes on. A goose and a pair of dunk ducklings occupied side stations, the middle being graced, as it always is in such occasions, by the rich burgomaster of the provisions, called a chicken pie. And, and she goes on to say this is a pumpkin pie. The chicken pie and the pumpkin pie are indispensable parts of the Yankee Thanksgiving. And we have lost the chicken pie, but the pumpkin pie is, st is still there. Um, Sarah Josepha Hale loved Thanksgiving, and she had a kind of bully pulpit as the editor of, of Godey's Ladies Book. She was able to write editorials, which reached a huge readership. And she also, starting in 1846, she started writing all the governors, all the senators, every president in office to ask them to declare a national day of Thanksgiving. She wanted it, she thought that this would help bind the nation together. And, um, you know, we know about the Civil War, but I've been doing reading lately in conjunction with developing a program about Lincoln. And it's clear that we were at odds for a long time before that. That there was, a, and Yankees wasn't just a Civil War pejorative for the Northerners. Yankees in Illinois were people who came from New England, as opposed to what are, are referred to this, uh, the book that I've been reading is uh, A Woman's Story of Pioneer Illinois, which is a memoir of the 1820s. 
And she calls the other people white folks, and they're clearly Southern. They're coming from Virginia and Kentucky, and they're entirely different. In her opinion, they're clearly lower class. And nothing is like Yankee. The Yankees spread out across the country, starting in the uh, end of the 18th century. And because the, you know, New England's poor land, and, and it's cold, and it's rocky, and if you want to farm, you're going to do a lot better in places like Ohio. And, and lands were given to the soldiers who fought in the War of 1812 in Illinois, and they came here. When they were New Englanders, they brought their love of Thanksgiving with them, and they petitioned local governors to try and in, in have that tradition carried out there. Sarah Josepha Hale finally struck pay dirt with um, Abraham Lincoln in 1863. There had been a, a victory at Gettysburg, and he was going to declare a day of Thanksgiving in August, and he was persuaded to wait until November and, and celebrating both that and Vicksburg with the idea that this would unify the country. And it was a thanksgiving for all the soldiers, all, all the lives that were lost. Now, not surprisingly, after the war, the South wasn't entirely keen on this holiday. They declared their own days of thanksgiving, such as when Georgia had a new constitution, which basically eliminated all the um, equality that had been given blacks and res resumed white control. So they didn't, they didn't particularly care for this at all. But some, a couple of things happened. One is a, someone found this letter that I, that I read you from Edwin, Edwin, uh, Edward Winslow. They found it. It had been hidden for, what, 200 years? And in 1841, it surfaced. And the person who reported it spoke about the thanksgiving it's the first time that word gets used of our Pilgrim Fathers. And it falls on fertile soil. And um, Sarah Josepha Hale picks it up and you incorporates it in her bid for Thanksgiving and, and make, starts making this link. And in 1865, she repeats that. And because she is so powerful, it gets picked up by magazines like Harper's Weekly, all the, all the magazines. And they start use, telling this tale. Now, what's happening in the, in the country at this time is this huge wave of immigration is starting to come in. The, the second wave of immigration came in the 1840s and 50s of mainly Irish and uh, uh, German, and both were included Catholics. Now, we, you know, there's a book by, um, this is Catherine Beecher's domestic receipt book, She's the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and the two of them wrote a book called The American Woman's uh, Home. And they, at one point, talk about the Christian home. They mean Protestant. You know, they don't mean any Christian. And when Catholics come in, that's a big change. And starting in the 1880s, people come in not from Northern Europe and Western Europe, but they're starting to come in from the Mediterranean, Italy, Greece, Eastern Europe, Russia, and, and they are entirely different. And there's a, an urge to help them Americanize and make them become Americanized. That's not quite the same thing. And, you know, it happens with this, the settlement in, in Milwaukee 
they take as their task the new Russian Eastern European Jews. But it's, it also happens in, in, in New England, and where the Fanny Farmer is. This was the, the first Fanny Farmer cookbook of 1896. And the, you know, some people have referred to the great white blanket of white sauce that appears in, the, in American food in the, in, in the early part of the late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. And you could argue that it's a metaphor for trying to you know, put a sauce over all of these different people who are coming in the front door and trying to make them American. Um, some groups would have nothing to do with it. The Italians absolutely wouldn't go to cooking classes at the settlement houses. They thought the food was disgusting. Um, but there was that movement. And one of, the way, one of the things that was done was the story of the first immigrant, or the first immigrants as the pilgrims coming. And the first Thanksgiving was told in schools and that was how the Americanizing got done. And interestingly, a brand new little book. I have some children's books that I brought with me, partly to show that actually they have gotten religion in terms of representing the um, Puritans as they probably looked rather than what we grew up with. No square buckles, no stovepipe hats, and, and not all black, more color but there's diffuse colors. But this is a book called Molly's Pilgrim. And Molly doesn't think she has much to be grateful for as her first American Thanksgiving draws near. Her classmates giggle at her imperfect English and make fun of her Russian clothes. Molly's mother only makes things worse when she helps with a class Thanksgiving project by making a little doll that looks more like a Russian refugee than a New England pilgrim. But that tiny pilgrim could be exactly what Molly needs to find a place for herself in America. And that was what the Thanksgiving story, the, the one with the pilgrims, was used for, to help these new immigrants find a place for themselves. And it got currency as so many people were coming in the front door um, to this country to try and, and have them be Americanized. So that's more or less how we get there, get here from there because things don't change that much from then until now. Um, President Roosevelt made an attempt at the lobbying of the retailers to move Thanksgiving from the fourth Thursday to the third Thursday. And it was called uh, Franksgiving in his honor. And some of the states followed it and some didn't. Uh, Texas had two Thanksgivings, one for Franklin, and one for the Texas A&M Texas football game. So they was, and he finally gave up after two years, and it went back to the fourth, uh, the fourth Thursday. This is Norman Rockwell's famous picture of Thanksgiving, and it was done as an illustration of one of um, Roosevelt's four freedoms. Yeah, this was the freedom from want, and the display is of Thanksgiving dinner with Grandma who looks you know, very much like sort of an iconic grandmother of a generation well before ours. Grandmothers don't seem to look like this anymore. And the whole family at the table, which is a very simple table with just celery and cranberry juice and some fruit, excuse me, cranberry sauce and some fruit, and water. But this is the image of the freedom from want that is done in 1941 uh, for us. 
But things, you know, the only things that really change are there is there are some inroads made by, as we mentioned earlier, with the green bean casserole, by the food industry to get. It's sort of interesting that we do do that. That we that green bean casserole has become part of many families' traditional Thanksgiving dinner. It has to be there. Um, what's on the table? Well, of course, there's a turkey, at least today, and that's part of a tradition. Of uh, it's, it's it's sort of interesting. Uh, big birds have been feast birds for hundreds of years, uh, from the Renaissance on. You know, whether it was swans, herons, just about anything that was big, and but it was the food of the elites. Now, one thing that's true of American culture is that we all eat the same food. We do not have an, a, the food of the aristocracy and the food of the peasants. Now, if, you're, if, you know, if you don't have much money, you may buy more ground beef than, than uh, rib roast, but you're still eating the same thing. There isn't much difference. And people enjoyed that. It's a whole bird. Think of the image of this whole big bird. And it's stuffed. What could be a better image of, a, of abundance than, than that? It's not pieces. I mean, we could have a leg of lamb, but that's a piece. This is a whole thing. It, it, it symbolizes plenty. We want, whole, we want new world foods on our table. So potatoes, sweet potatoes, corn, lima beans, squash, pumpkin pie, cranberry sauce. Some people have pecans. Those are all new world. And now, many people, not when I was growing up, but, and not all over the country, but many people serve wine with their Thanksgiving dinner. And it's often a California wine or a, a New York wine or something, something that is an American wine to, to you know, distinguish between us and the old world. It's seasonal food. You don't serve asparagus. One of my classmates tried that. She came back from college ready to sort of upgrade her family, and she decided to make um, hollandaise sauce and fresh asparagus for Thanksgiving dinner. And she, says, she said they voted with their feet. You know, they wanted the green bean casserole that she replaced. But they're plain foods. And this is an old tradition. There was something called Forefather's Day, which also contributed to, uh, back in the 18th century, which also contributed to the Thanksgiving tradition. And they, for their feast in 1769, they said they wanted all appearance of luxury and extravagance being avoided. So, you know, this is not, um, there's a lot of it, but we're not talking about foie gras and caviar and filet. Um, it is, it, they tend to be plain and seasonal foods. They're separate foods, you know? This is one of our problems that we had with the Italians. The Italians mixed things together. And anybody knew at that point, 1910, that foods mixed together were hard to digest and didn't give you the same nutrition that they do separated. This isn't true, but this is what we knew then. So, you know, quintessential American foods are separated. There's the meat, the vegetables, but and and furthermore, for, for Thanksgiving, in general, now, if you look at Martha Stewart, 
or some of the fancier cook, cooking magazines, someone will suggest a sweet potato souffle. But mostly, they're pretty close to the land. They're, they're quite recognizable. The Brussels sprouts, if you're serving those, are recognizable. So it's a real harvest meal. And, and it, and it, but and they're all on the table at the same time. Now, this is a choice. We have two courses. We don't have to have just two courses. But in general, everything's on the table at the same time for the turkey and the dressing and the stuffing and the vegetables and the rolls and the cornbread. It's all out there. And if you happen to have married into a family that puts marshmallows on its sweet potatoes and you don't, there may be two sweet potato dishes. I mean, that the wise family will have two sweet potato dishes. Yeah? Penelope, can you bet... In Rhoda, that all of this on the table came from that illustration of uh, Norman Rockwell. His sense of plenty and put it all out there no. on the democratic no. level. The illus- the, you, you, you heard me read, did it, was it all on the table? Did it come from Norman Rockwell? No, it, it, it well predates that. And if, if you read, if I'd read more of Sarah Josepha Hale's description or uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's description, or if, or if you, if you look more closely at what actually earlier peoples would have done in this country, it would have all been on the table at the same time. But then there's a the second course, which is all the pies and various other desserts, and there'll be a lot of them. Now, this isn't true for everybody. Uh, you know, there, the, there's a turkey. And most of us, as we talked about, have turkey. But after that, people can do their own thing, depending on their ethnic group and their family. So I, some people in the stuffing, um, I spoke in Mount Morris the other day, and there is a strong um, German immigrant history there. And one person said very sadly, and I mean this, very sadly, that they had a different stuffing every year because they, every year they were trying to find the German dried fruit stuffing that she remembered her mother using. And her mother had died before she could leave the recipe, and so when they found one, they'd try it, and it was never quite right. You know, food is very, very powerful. Um, there is a new book out called Cooking Jewish by Gu- Judy Bart Kanzinger, and she, it's a family cookbook which has been so successful that Workman Publishing asked her to, to do it again, to, to expand it, glamorize it, do it again. And she uh, spoke of trying to make her grandmother's cake recipe that was you know, a pinch of this, a handful of that, that sort of thing. And she, but she needed to get it better for the cookbook. And she made it, and she turned to her mother with a bite and gave, gave her mother the bite of it to say, is this grandma's recipe? And her mother was speechless. There were just tears rolling down her cheeks. It was that cake. And by the taste in her mouth, her mother was there again. You know, it's, it's very powerful. And we, we all invoke this at Thanksgiving with recipes. You know, you have your grandmother's stuffing, or you have, you know, Aunt Judy's pecan pie. There's something, you know, we sort of invoke them, whether they're here or not, with that. And there's some, there's some discussion about whether that gives us some family identity just by having these homemade foods. You know, some of us buy foods. Those of us who live near Sunset Foods are tempted <laughs> to go. I beg your pardon? The Kugel. The Kugel. 
Oh, but yeah, in the same cook. In the, I'm sorry, the Kugel recipe from the same cookbook. Um, every cousin of Judy's sent in a Kugel recipe, and the the publisher said, "You have too many Kugel recipes. You've got to cut some." And she said, "You don't understand. You're not cutting a Kugel recipe. You're cutting a, out a cousin." Uh, that it was that important. Um, it's a family holiday. You know, maybe if we'd come from another strand of uh, European immigrants, we might have made it a communal holiday, something maybe like Oktoberfest, you know, where there was a communal thing, long tables, everybody to get together. But no, it's in your house, and everyone is around the table. Um, furthermore, it's, uh, it's inclusive. You include the whole family. And from the very beginning, we have included what my cousins call waifs and strays, you know, people who might not have somewhere to go. That's not new. We've, we've done that for a long time. That's part of the Thanksgiving. And it's part of the sort of a generosity of spirit. And we have also made sure that people in the community who might not have as much as we do don't go without turkey, don't go without a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, the military has tried to make sure that no serviceman, no matter where he might be, or she now might be, um, is ever without a Thanksgiving dinner. And there's a wonderful image of 1942 in Italy when there were soldiers across the river and the bridges had all been blown up. And apparently they hurled the turkey across the river. <laughs> you know, and to get, it was that important to get this dinner, which links us all together. Um, so, you know, what does this say about us? That it's our most popular holiday and that we wouldn't do without it. I mean, you know, think about it. Even this year, this has not been the greatest year for the American economy. And I suspect that no, none of us is canceling Thanksgiving because of it. Turkeys are cheap. But think about it as a ritual. It's, more, it's, a, it's a ritual. It's more than just a meal. And one definition of rituals is that they are transformative. So the ritual of a marriage ceremony transforms a man and a woman to a couple, to a husband and wife. That ritual does it. Think about this ritual of Thanksgiving. We're all eating the same food at the same time. And it also is a ritual of not only sort of across the board, so that you are linked in a way, virtually, to every American every, at the same time, whether they're in this country or not. But you're also linked to your family. You're linked to your family in the past, and you're linked to your family in the, in the future. Because, you know, they may be eating Aunt Rhoda's pumpkin pie. And, and that will give you a kind of immortality. Wow. You know, that's, that's pretty powerful. So it transforms us from 300 million, I would say mavericks, but that word has been overused lately, 300 million people with different ethnic backgrounds, different religions, different political viewpoints. But for this one day, we become transformed into um, Americans, you know, that one nation indivisible that is our ideal. That's pretty powerful that you can get that from a bird, you know. And it's a, that it's a fixed day. 
it's not just declared when there's a great harvest. Or, you know, today you might say, okay, the stock market goes up. We declare a day of Thanksgiving. But even if the stock market goes down, we're going to have Thanksgiving on Thursday. That's also, I think, an American trait. Um, tomorrow is a better day. You know, we, are, we, we are, have hope and expectation of, of abundance, whether today, to this year is a good year or not. Um, so Thanksgiving looks both back and forward and looks across. And we are, you know, we're both doing our own thing within the family, but we're also doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. It's kind of powerful to do that. Now, I've brought to share with you um, a whole bunch of things. I've brought the first American cookbook. The wonderful thing is that these are all available now in cheap reprints. This is $3.95, but I looked on Amazon, actually, and it's $5.95 now. Big deal. This is the very first American cookbook, um, American Cookery from 1796 by Amelia Simmons. And it's wonderful because if you look in it, you will see recipes for turkey, cranberry, corn, um, pumpkin. All the things that make up our Thanksgiving dinner appear in here. They do not appear in this. This is Hannah Glass's um, Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy, which was published in London. Um, I brought some of the old cookbooks. I also brought some newer ones. The ones there are, are cookbooks from the 1940s, the, me, the um, Modern Family Cookbook, the Good Housekeeping Cookbook, and I, oh, I didn't mention to you, I brought my, you my mother's entire cookbook collection, this one book, which is the American Woman's Cookbook. And if you look at the recipe, if you look at the menus, these all have menus for Thanksgiving. They're remarkably little changed. Um, in, and here, this is the, the uh, White House cookbook from 1887, which also has Thanksgiving Day re recipes. Now, I brought a lot of magazines because it must be one definition of hell to be the editor of a food magazine for the November edition. I mean, what can you do? Because you're faced with this tradition. People don't want to change. and But somebody is going to get tired of making the same thing every year. So they're going to pick up one thing, maybe new. But look at what they have for their covers. Every single one of these has a turkey on the front. It doesn't matter which one you look at or which year it has a turkey in the front, except for these two in the middle, which are Bon Appetit and Saveur, for the same year. And somebody got really inventive and showed a Thanksgiving plate you know, with the turkey and the, and the vegetable and the stuffing. Somebody was really upset when they saw what the other had done, I <laughs> promise you, from that one. One thing you might want to know, though, is how many of you are familiar with Taste of Home magazine? Interesting. Taste of Home, you should know. Come up and look at it afterwards. Taste of Home outsells the sum of every other cooking magazine in the country. And this is a magazine which is not afraid to use canned products or to use other things from the food industry. It's hard to find something like that in Bon Appetit. You won't find Campbell's Cream Mushroom Soup in Bon Appetit. Um, by the way, the new, ah, the new Joy of Cooking. You know, there's a brand new edition of the Joy of Cooking. The, the one that came out before in 1997, 
is you know, well over 1,000 pages, 1,136 pages. And it's, it got criticized as being too fancy by half. You know, it left out a lot of the how-to things. But, and I believe it has a green bean bake, or no, it has a tuna noodle casserole where you start with the white sauce and then you add the uh, mushrooms to it. And, you know, the, this brand new joy of cooking has both. It has, you know, how to make it from scratch and how to open the can and, and you know, mix it with... You know, and it's very funny, and it's the kind of thing... Well, you know, um, Irma Rombauer wrote a cookbook in the, at the end of the 30s, 1939, called Streamlined Cookery, which was all how to mix canned soups for something unique and original. Oh, yes, and I forgot to talk about... Yeah, I, I didn't bring anything with jello molds. But jello has become also something that you have to have on your thanks some people have to have on their thanksgiving table and their particular yeah their particular salad yeah no definitely jello molds are definitely part of it i've also brought you books about thanksgiving and about um, american food and books about cookbooks um i'm really actually a book pimp you know i try to push books on people <laughs> not not these very ones but take notes yeah and if we trace back when the turkey rose to the top and the mutton fell away and the, and the beef fell away, and one thing you read to us at all? When, when did turkey get to be the preeminent yes, Thanksgiving bird? It's not entirely clear, but one thing you should know is that the original turkeys were about eight pounds or so, so you almost had to have something else with it. It was one of the biggest birds, but and some get up to 15 pounds. We have, you know, done, you know, could call them sort of Frankenstein turkeys, but we have done huge, made huge changes to turkeys with breeding. And it's all been consumer-driven. So Americans like white meat. So the breast has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger so that some turkeys now cannot walk. And none of them has been able to mate since 1930. It's true. They all, they all are, are um, reproduced by artificial insemination. But they've got this lots of white meat for you. The second thing that happened is in most turkeys, if you look at old pictures, they've got brown feathers, and that was the most common one. It was a bronze. It's called bronze. And American women didn't like the little black spots that were left after you pulled out the brown feathers. So now they're all large white. It's one species. And furthermore, the number of, of breeders is reduced to very few. I mean, almost all, I've got the numbers in there somewhere, but almost all the turkeys that you get are by a single, are by, are by about a handful of, not a single, but a handful of breeders like, you know, um, a Conagra, big, huge agricultural company, uh, uh, companies. But what's happening now is part of the slow food impact movement is the renaissance of what are being called heritage breeds, which are the kinds of turkeys that would have been familiar to Harriet Beecher Stowe and Sarah Josepha Hale and you know, the, the writers of the cookbooks from earlier times before the American food industry started you know, breeding these, these turkeys. And they have a completely different taste, I'm told, they're gamier, more dark meat. 
Um, turkeys used to have really long legs and be able to outrun a dog. And they could really fly fast, too, which is one of the reasons they think maybe they didn't get have any turkeys for dinner at, the fir- at, at Plymouth, because their guns were really bad. And the turkeys flew so fast that they were really hard to get. So, but now they can't get off the ground. You know, that, but these heritage turkeys are coming back. And I might say that if you buy one of those, it, you might want to look at some of these old cookbooks. Because they have, if you have a turkey that has been stuffed with vegetable oil and, and um, uh, brine, you know, which is what most of the ones you buy at the Jewel or Dominic's or any supermarket will have, to, to give them the flavor that's been bred up. We, did, we didn't ask for flavor, we asked for breast meat and size. Uh, that's been bred out of them. Um, you have to cook them differently to make them tender. So sometimes they boil them first and then they roast them which sounds disgusting until you realize it's a different animal. So, yeah, so let me stop here and take any questions that you have. These, cook- these old cookbooks are, are quite useful for dealing with the new birds. Oh, I don't know. I mean, are, there, are turkey, how dumb are turkeys? I, I don't know. I mean, clearly, they, I think the wild ones weren't dumb. But we have not bred them for intelligence. So I, I, I don't know how dumb they are now. I mean, but you know that they're, they hardly move for their lifespan. And, and by the way, they used to take two years to grow to maturity. Now they are mature in four to six months. So it's a, it's a very different animal. So, you know, it's just the evolution of the recipe. Well, the, as the, the, the evolution of cooking turkey recipes, I mean, one of the things that changes is, is what people, the cooking equipment that people have. And, you know, until the turn of the 20th century and even later, there were still people cooking at open hearths. And the, um, actually I was just in Springfield last week and saw that went toward the Lincoln House, which is the only house they ever owned, and there's a stove there. And you know that, before that stove, and they were there for some years before they got the stove, that was open hearth cooking. And it's, you know, there are ways to roast things, but you, and with a spit or their reflector oven kinds of things that you have to turn them around. But it was a lot easier to boil them. Yeah. And that, that would, have, would have happened a lot. Anything else? Well, thank you very much. And I hope you'll come up and take a look at things um, afterwards, and I'll be here for a little bit. Thank you for coming. <laughs>